Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 10? We'll be looking at verses 1 to 18 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. I'd like to read it for us as we begin. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And first he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. And he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. And first he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, you know that sometimes we just have many different thoughts in our mind. We're concerned about maybe what happened last week or concerned about a loved one. We're thinking about what we have to do today or tomorrow or the week ahead. And Father, I pray that we would just be able to put all of that aside and to think about you this morning, to think about the sacrifice that was made by your Son and to stand in wonder and amazement at your grace so freely given. Father, this is just an incredible passage, and I pray that you would guide me in what I say, and that your words would come through to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have ever gone hiking in the mountains or sightseeing in those areas, you know that one of the joys is to get to the top of the mountain and to enjoy the view. They put those scenic overlooks there for a reason because it's just amazing to stand and look out on what you can see. 
Uh, last summer, Gail and I went to Yosemite National Park, and we were there, and we went up to a place called Glacier Point, where you can see the different sites in the valley below, and some of those incredible sites are like this picture of Half Dome that we took there. Or you can see Vernal Falls, which is this waterfall off in the distance. And we actually hiked up to the top of that on another climb. And we're standing up there on the edge of the waterfall itself. Uh, you can see in this picture Yosemite Falls. It's way in the distance. And I look at that picture and I think, you know, they used to let people stand on that promontory. There are some of those classic old photos. They, they don't encourage that anymore. You know, I, I look at that and I think that would be a little scary being out there on the edge on that, that rock that's there. But they are beautiful vistas. And when you make a climb or you get to the top, you want to stay there a while to take it all in. You kind of want to absorb the sights and the sounds and the view. Well, I want you to think of that in coming to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. Because in chapter 10, we come to the high point in this book. And it's where the writer of scriptures really brings together all of these things that he's been saying. There's some repetition here, some things that you have heard before, but he really brings it all together and summarizes it in these 18 verses that we are looking at this morning. He talks about the old covenant and how it is being put aside. He talks about the new covenant and how it is so much better. He speaks about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And the author of Scripture doesn't want us to rush by this quickly. He wants us to linger there. He wants us to think about all that Jesus has done for us and stand in amazement and worship Him. This is the Gospel in Hebrews. This is the place that explains it all and our human condition and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's what we're going to walk through this morning. He begins in verses 1-4 to by telling us about the limits of the law. And he tells us that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It was just a, a pointer. It was an indicator of what was to come, but it was not the substance itself. The law and the tabernacle were intended to teach us something about God and about our sin. And if you think about the points that were made when you read through the Old Covenant and you look at the law and what Moses wrote, we understand that God is holy. In fact, He is terrifying in His holiness. We know nothing like God in His perfection. We understand that we are sinful and we are separated from God because of our sin. It started with Adam and Eve's rebellion and it continues in our own rebellion against God and the hardness of our own heart. And we understand that the penalty for sin is death, that sin is costly and someone must pay that penalty. And the Old Covenant teaches us about substitutionary atonement, that only one who was innocent Only one who was without spot or blemish could pay the penalty for our sins. You know, it's like the Old Testament four spiritual laws here, or it's like the Roman road being shared in the Old Covenant, that all of those things pointed forward. 
And you can think of these individuals who were obedient, who brought their sacrifices, who knew that they had sinned, and so they, they brought a lamb, they brought a goat or a ram or whatever was required, and they would have that taken by the priests and presented on their behalf as an offering for their sin. But it was never sufficient. It was never enough. It was always temporary because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. And I think of those individuals. What was on their minds as they brought these offerings? What was on the mind of the priests as day after day they offered these sacrifices for sin? They must have wondered, when would it end? When would that one come who would be that perfect sacrifice for sin? The law was a shadow. It pointed forward to the greater reality, he tells us, and that greater reality is Jesus Christ. The one who would come, who would be that Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And the writer of Hebrews is urging his people here not to turn back to the old covenant, but to continue to walk with Christ, to put their trust in Him and hold on to Him. The law is only shadow of the good things that are coming a few weeks ago pastor jason was speaking and he picked up on that idea and i thought he illustrated it well how the law is like a shadow he used the story of when he and kim got married and they went on their honeymoon to maui and how uh, in anticipation of that they were looking at those travel brochures and seeing things and sights they were going to see but how those things paled in comparison to the reality of being on the beach and walking in the sand and feeling the sun coming down upon you and just enjoying all the sights and sounds of that place. Why would you hang on to the shadow when you can have the real thing? Why would you hold on to the brochures if you could really be there and experience the wonders of that place? I got to tell you, the other thing though I was thinking about when Jason was sharing that story was how times have changed. I think when we got married, we went to St. Paul and then the Black Hills. So <laughs> it, it must be something different here that was, was going on. And maybe you can relate to that too. But I think about how Jesus is so much greater. So much greater. When I see those pictures that I showed you of Yosemite, it brings back memories, but it's not the same thing as being there and taking it all in. And when we come to know Christ and understand what He has done for us, we never want to go back again to the old covenant. The writer of Scriptures is telling us this, that we have a problem with sin and rituals cannot make us right with God or cleanse our conscience from sin. It couldn't do it in the Old Testament, even though it was commanded. God commanded them to offer these sacrifices. God commanded the priests to do these rituals. They were part of what He wanted to see done, but it was all instructive. It was all temporary. And the very fact that they had to do it again and again and again was a reminder of sins, He says. It was pointing to something greater. And in our own day, religious rituals cannot make us right with God or cleanse our conscience from sin. It's not how often you go to church. 
It's not, many, it's not how many times you pray or how many candles you light. It's not how many personal sacrifices you make or acts of penance that you might do. It's not pilgrimages or offerings that bring us near to God. What brings us near to God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And when our hope is in Him, our standing is secure. So the writer of Scripture here goes on to talk in verses 5 to 9 about the superior sacrifice of Christ. And he tells us here that this problem of sin has been dealt with in the person and work of Christ once for all. Once for all. Look at verses 5 to 9. He said, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With the burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll that I have come to do your will, O God. What's going on here? Why is he quoting from this psalm? It's Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8 is what he's picking up on. And why is he bringing out this point? It is because what God desires more than sacrifice is a life lived in obedience to his word. Those sacrifices were required when people sinned. But what God wanted more than those sacrifices was a heart that was right with Him so that there would not be a need for those sacrifices again and again and again. What He desires more than anything is that kind of loving relationship with His children. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel the prophet said to King Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Or again, Isaiah would say in chapter 1 of his book, God said, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, In fact, he even said, stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. Now that's amazing. I'm here as God saying, I've had enough. I've had enough with people who think that they can uh, sin at will and then they can just come and bring an offering and it's no big deal and then they go out and they live a life that was not pleasing to God and they were rebellious and turning away from Him and worshiping other idols and doing all of these other things. God said, stop, stop, and think about what you are doing. What God wanted more than anything was a people who would love him and obey him. And the prophets would call that over and over again. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, you can go through all the prophets in the Old Testament. And they will say things like this, what does the Lord require of us? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. It calls us to stop doing wrong, to learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the weak or the widow, the poor, the alien, to humbly walk with God. So when Jesus came into our world, what did He do? He came to do the will of our Father in heaven. And we see that reflected in this particular passage that is being quoted from Psalm 40. 
that a body was prepared for him. He came, he became a man just like us. And he came to do the Father's will. And we see that repeated over and over again in Scripture. In John 4, verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6, 38, he said, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In fact, ten times in John's gospel, those kind of statements will be made. That he came not to do his will, but to do everything that the Father required. And in Jesus' life, we see one who fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Everything that God had asked of us, Jesus did. And he did it perfectly, without sin. Even to the point where Jesus would be obedient even unto death. In in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, Paul picks up on that. Of this one who became like us, and was obedient even to the point of laying down his life for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He walked with God every moment that he was on this earth. And he was willing to even go to the cross on our behalf to suffer and die for us. And what God desires is that same kind of loving obedience from us. A willingness to surrender all to Him, to give Him our life. A willingness even to die if that were asked of us. He's not impressed by religious rituals. He's not impressed by people who give God lip service but have no desire to do what He says. What God wants most of all is a heart that is fully devoted to Him. And think about that, you know, as a parent, those of you that are parents. I mean, when you think about your relationship with your children, what do you desire most of all? Would you like it if your child, you know, gave you a nice gift on your birthday, but it was kind of grudgingly given, or it seemed more like they were just doing it because it was your birthday? Or would you rather have a child who had a loving relationship with you that lasted throughout the year and were shown in words and deeds at many different points along the way? Think about it if you are married. You know, today's Valentine's Day. Would you like it if your spouse gave you a gift that was given out of duty? Well, I guess it's Valentine's Day. I'm supposed to get you a card or flowers or something like that. Or would you rather have a spouse who truly loved you and wanted to be with you and delighted in that relationship? I mean, what all of us would take by far would be that kind of loving relationship with our children or a loving relationship with our spouse rather than lip service or some kind of gift given on a certain occasion because you're supposed to do that. And it's the same with God. What God desires more than sacrifices is that kind of loving relationship from His children who honor Him, who worship Him, who obey him. And Jesus was the perfect example of that. He came to do the will of his Father in heaven. And what the Scripture tells us here is that by his obedience, he set aside the first covenant in order to establish the second one. The first covenant is old. It is obsolete. It's been done away with in order that this new covenant could be established. 
And by that will, he tells us, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And thirdly, the writer of Scripture picks up on that when he talks about the finality and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for us. In verses 10 to 18, he goes through a number of things that are part of this finality of this offering that was given once for all. And he begins by contrasting the finished work of Christ with that of the Levitical priests. And he said in verse 11, that day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. I mean, can you imagine that? Day after day, here are these Levitical priests. They are standing at their work. To stand is the posture of a priest. People are coming. They keep coming. They bring their sacrifices. You know, you come. The animal sacrifice is slaughtered. It's gutted. The entrails are uh, cast away. The rest of it is cut up, burned on the altar, you know. And all these offerings are made. And all these different types of offerings, some are voluntary offerings, some are sin offerings, some are guilt offerings, burnt offerings for specific types of sins. And the priests know all of this. And they've done this again and again and again and again. It is a river of blood that has been flowing from the tabernacle. And it could never ultimately deal with the problem of our sin. It was external. It dealt with those things that were external, but it could not make us holy. It could not change our heart. What we needed was something that would do a work on the inside of us. And so he tells us that when this priest, meaning Jesus, offered up his sacrifice, it was once for all. And when it was done, he sat down. That's amazing. The sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. One sacrifice for all time, for all people, for all who would believe in Him. And when it was done, when He had gone to the cross and rose again, He went into the very presence of His Father in heaven there to make atonement for our sins, not in this earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly one. And to come on our behalf to present his sacrifice as an offering for our sins. And when that was done, he sat down at the right hand of his Father in heaven. It is finished, Jesus would say. That word in Greek means it is paid in full. Done. Forever. There is no other religion like that. This is true of no other religion. There's no other religion where one sacrifice is sufficient for all people, for every generation, for all time. But the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient. And that's why it's been said that the difference between other religions and Christianity is really the difference between do and done. I mean, other religions will say this is what you need to do to be right with God. This is what you need to do to merit His favor. This is what you need to do to make atonement for your sins or penance in some way. And what Christianity, true Christianity says, is it is done. 
the penalty's been paid. And what we must do is admit our sin and turn to Christ and place our hope and our confidence in Him. And when we do that, our sins are covered by His blood. What is Christ doing now? Well, verse 13 here tells us that He is waiting for the day when His enemies will be made His footstool. He's waiting for that day when the Father will put all things under His feet. It's already been declared. It will be done. But we do not yet see it, the writer of Scripture says. We are waiting for that day too when Jesus will come again in His second coming and He will return to earth and He will vanquish His enemies. And all the world will see that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's waiting for that day when every knee will bow before Him and acknowledge who He really is. And He is presently at the Father's right hand where He intercedes for us according to the Father's will. He's there. He pleads our case. He is praying for us. He is watching over His church. He is interceding on our behalf continually. We can have no better defense attorney or no better advocate than Jesus Christ, the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then he tells us in verse 14 that by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That you and I have been made perfect already by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when he died on that cross for our sins. And yet at the same time, we are also being made holy. That verse actually speaks to both sides of the coin. It speaks to both our justification and our sanctification. The justification is a legal declaration that before the, the judge of the universe, you have been declared forgiven and righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done for us. By faith in Jesus Christ, as our Savior and Lord, we are forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. It is paid in full. And then we are also clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not our own righteousness, but His righteousness. So that when we stand before His throne, what God the Father sees is the righteousness of His Son. And it's because of what Christ has done, that's why we can come before Him in prayer. That's why we can come before Him in worship and bring to Him our needs and our praise and our uh, you know, uh, honor and glory that we give to Him as our Savior and Lord. Jesus is the one who has opened that way and made it all possible. But there is also this work of sanctification that is going on. We have been declared righteous, but in this life we are growing more and more like Christ. That's the intent, that He would work in us, that we would turn from sin, that we'd be growing in faith and obedience and being honest about what's going on in our heart and admitting our sin and getting to know God better in His Word. All of those things so that we are growing more and more like Him. It's a cooperative work. It calls for obedience on our part. But the power comes from Christ. And it will be brought to completion. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What I love about that is that the result is guaranteed. The result is guaranteed. We will stand in His presence righteous, forgiven, and no guilt, no shame, all because of Jesus Christ. We've been given a new power. We see that in verse 16, that he said, I will put my laws in their hearts. I'll write them on their minds, that God's word becomes something that becomes etched in our heart. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who works in us. And it is Christ in us that is our hope of glory. And then he adds in verse 17 that their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. Now that's an amazing statement. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. I mean, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know everything? Yes, he does. I mean, the problem here is not uh, God remembering, but it is stating that God will not hold them against us. God will not bring our sins up again because they have been covered by Jesus Christ's blood. And where they have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. It's as though God the Father is saying to us, we will not speak of that again. It is paid in full. And he chooses not to hold our sins against us. That's grace. That's amazing. All that he has done for us because of Jesus Christ. John Ortberg shared this story in May of 2009. His family was in Azusa, California. One of their kids was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. And his wife, Nancy, had actually been asked to speak at the commencement ceremonies. So she and I, he said, were invited to a special gathering of about 50 people. They were people from the graduating class of 50 years ago and a few faculty members. During the gathering, John Wallace, the president of Azusa Pacific, brought out three students who were graduating that year. And he told us that these students were going to be going for the next two years to work among the poorest of the poor in India. And these three students thought they were there just to be commissioned and then sent out with a blessing, which they were. Well, something happened that day that they did not know was coming. John turned to them and he said, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor, who is so moved by what you're doing that he has given a gift to this university in your name on your behalf. And John turned to the first student and he said, you are forgiven your debt of $105,000. And the kid immediately began to cry. He couldn't believe it. He was overwhelmed. And John turned to the next student and said, you are forgiven your debt of $70,000. And then he turned to the third student and said that you are forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students had no idea it was coming. They were just ambushed by grace, blown away that somebody who they didn't even know would pay their debt. 
the whole room was in tears. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like as a student to have your debt forgiven in full? Then think of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If we could see the mountain of our debt that we owe to God, that mountain of our sins piled high, that mountain that, as Pastor Jason has reminded us more than once, just stinks, you know? (laughs) It's there, and it stinks. And if we were to stand before the Lord and we were to see all the things that we have ever done in our life, it would be shameful. It would be overwhelming. It'd be unanswerable. There was nothing that we could say in our defense. We are guilty. But then imagine that in a moment it is all taken away because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the word is pronounced that your debt has been paid in full by the blood of my Son. And then not only does He call for those sins to be taken away and forgiven, forgotten, never to be brought up again, but He says, would you bring out the garments of righteousness? And you stand there and you are clothed with these royal robes as a son or daughter of the King. You are given the garments of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, He tells you that you have been welcomed into His family. Adopted as His very own forever. You are His child. And you will spend eternity with Him enjoying the inheritance that belongs to His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Scripture is telling us. And should we not be moved to tears by the grace of God and by the sacrifice of His Son that was made once for all? I mean, why would you ever go back? Why would you ever turn back to the old way and think that somehow you could do this on your own? No. The response on our part is one of amazement, of faith, of trust in Him, and a desire to give Him our whole heart. Let's pray. Father, as we come before Your throne this morning, thank You that that is possible because of Jesus Christ our Savior. And when we hear described the sacrifice that He made for us that so completely, finally, sufficiently took away all of our sins and has given us this new standing before You, Father, we stand in amazement. It's hard for us to even comprehend Your grace. It is so wonderful and so rich and so freely given. Father, I pray that for those of us that are here today, that we would willingly give you our hearts, our whole life. If you've never made a commitment to Christ before as your Savior and Lord, today could be the day when you say to Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins and welcome me into your family? But for all of us who know him, Jesus, we say thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness, for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Once for all, amen.